All right, back on the Young Turks. Joining me now is Matt Stoller. He's a fellow at the Open Markets Institute. He was a senior policy advisor and budget analyst for the Senate Budget Committee. And he's now written the book, Goliath, The 100 Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. Matt, welcome to the Young Turks. Thanks for having me. No problem, Matt. So you say that populism and authoritarianism, authoritarianism has risen and the Democratic Party has fallen. So before we get to monopolies, let's talk about that. Why do you think that those two forces have risen up now? Right, so if you look around the world today, you'll see what a lot of people call a crisis of capitalism, but it's actually a crisis of monopoly. So you see monopolies in everything from search and social to airlines and cable to syringes, to small markets like peanut butter coffins. And what monopolies do is they transfer wealth from a large group of people to a small group of people, and they create many autocracies over every market. They also corrupt our politics, and, and the corruption and concentration you see in individual markets then bleeds over into the political system. And so we feel alienated. We feel like there are these bars of control over our over our actions, and there are, because they're controlling our markets, our commercial selves. So that's why there's a lot of anger. And now when people look at the political system, they're like, well, I'm getting bossed around in my commercial life, so why not, uh, why not allow you know, me to be bossed around in my political life? It's all just a bunch of bosses. And the Democrats have really not stood up against that system. And so people look at the Democratic Party and they say, well, what good is it? Who cares? What does politics even matter? So you wrote a piece in the Atlantic called How the Democrats Killed Their Populist Soul. So how did they kill it? Well, so we've had the problem of a crisis of monopoly before. We had it in the first half of the 20th century when robber barons really controlled our politics, controlled our businesses, and and controlled our workers. And we we broke that that power with with the New Deal, with a series of antitrust cases and and marches and activism and grassroots activism and elections. Um, and then in the in the 1950s to the 1970s, we gradually allowed the robber barons to come back. And this is largely because uh, the the 1975 class, which was the Watergate baby class, as Bill Clinton's basically when Bill Clinton entered politics, they decided that corporate concentration wasn't a problem, right? So the the New Dealers. Basically, they faced off against fascists, and they said fascism, one part of it is financial concentration, monopoly power. And the new the 1970s, the Democrats said, ah, that's kind of old fashioned, right? That's not really a problem. What we need to do is just focus on consumerism. And in consumerism, you don't care if you're getting your stuff from a local store or from a Walmart, as long as the price is low. And so Democrats got obsessed with this idea that we're not citizens, that we are consumers. And so corporate power doesn't matter as long as you're treated well as a consumer. You don't vote at the voting booth, you vote with your dollars in the marketplace. And that's a very autocratic frame. So that class in 1975, they kind of severed that tradition that we had of looking at corporate concentration as a political problem. And you roll that forward 40 years and you see roll-ups in every sector of our economy until too big to fail banks crashed the economy in 2008 and nine. Democrats had no way of seeing that as a political crisis because we we had forgotten how to actually see power. And we're slowly starting to relearn it, but it's taking a while. Yeah, well, look, monopolies swallow up everything in their path. And the most important thing they swallowed up was our government, which is actually very logical. If you're going to accrue power, you really need the government on your side. You don't, because 
As we know, Adam Smith and everyone who's ever written about capitalism says you must break up monopoly power, otherwise it'll destroy capitalism. And so, so they did, they swallowed up the government. So to me, Matt, the real underlying problem is that we allowed corporations through the Supreme Court to contribute to politicians. Once we did that, it was all over, because of course they were gonna buy them all, and they did buy them all, including the Democratic Party. Uh, what do you think about that thesis as, as the source of the, the beginning of the vicious cycle? So in Goliath, I go into the, the philosophical change, and, and you're talking about Citizens United, but you can go back to the 1970s and see some of those campaign finance decisions. You're right, uh, and, and one, of, one of the things that New Dealers understood, and actually Mark Zuckerberg understands this too, is that corporate monopolies are not just about corrupting government, they are government, they are a system of governance. So when, when Mark Zuckerberg gets up and testifies before Congress and Congress is frustrated, it's, it's not a business leader that's testifying, it's kind of the global privacy commissioner, the global social networking czar. Like he's governing and he's explicitly said it that way. And so when you're talking about something like corporations giving to, uh, to candidates or actually just spending money on elections, you have one monopoly, which is Facebook essentially structuring are, are you know deciding who can run ads and how they can run ads and what they can say in ads. That goes way beyond just kind of contributing to, uh, to, can- to candidates. And really what happened is that you saw a philosophical shift in the 1970s, which has to do with a whole bunch of stuff, including campaign finance, where what we essentially said as a society is, we're gonna invest governing power in private concentrations of power, and we're gonna take it away from democratic institutions and public institutions like unions, like co-ops, like states and, and, and federal governments. That's where we are now, and it is a philosophical choice. It's a, it's a choice that lives in the heart of the people. So Goliath is a book about hope, because we actually can change this. But we have to decide that we wanna live in a democracy, and that means taking power back from the corporate monopolies that governing us, investing that power in our elected officials and in ourselves. So Matt, I, I wanna go to that uh, idea about how we fix this in just one second. I want to clarify for people, Citizens United shot a dead horse. The horse was killed in the pivotal 1970s that Matt's talking about in 1976 Buckley v. Vallejo and 1978 Bellotti decisions. Those are the ones that said corporations are human beings, have speech rights, money is speech, and so they can give money to politicians. And I asked Ralph Nader once on this show, and you talk about Nader's Raiders and how strong they were. And and I said, it looked like you ran into a brick wall. And he said, I did. And and the guy responsible was Tony Coelho. And he was in the 78 class that told the other Democrats, hey guys, we can take corporate money now. And that's what I think ruined the Democratic Party. Before we get to the solution, how bad of a situation do you think the Democratic Party is in right now? Like if you ask me about the Republican Party at the national level, if it's not 100% corrupt, I'd say it's at least 99% corrupt. What would you say for the Democrats? I actually think that, well, first of all, one thing about Nader, he, he actually created the corporate free speech right, which he doesn't like to broadcast, but he did it because he said it's good for consumers, for pharmaceutical companies to be able to advertise. Um, just an FYI. Oops. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> zoink. Um, but, uh, I think the Democratic Party is in a battle, and I actually think the Republican Party is in a battle too. It's actually happening all over our society. You see conflicts in business, you see conflicts in the Pentagon, you see conflicts in black America, 
you know, all of our society, there's essentially a generational battle about uh, about whether we're going to tolerate basically corporate uh, a corporate government or whether we're going to have democratic uh, governance. And I think the Democratic Party is really split. So you see a lot of people, you know, they're they're very uncomfortable with corporate government, but they're also really uncomfortable with democracy. So they they go to they flood to people like Buttigieg or people like Biden or others because that makes them feel comfortable with sort of the status quo. And then you see other people kind of flooding to to Warren or to Bernie and because they want to actually, you know, they basically have student debt or they want to challenge corporate concentration or financial concentration. And and so it really is a battle and it really is about, you know, we can do something about it. We can make these choices and we are making these choices. So Goliath is a book about hope because it really does say, you know, part of part of the message and this is something people really don't like to hear is that we created this on the left and the right. Like it is kind of our fault, but it, but it's a hopeful book because it also means that we don't have to continue to create it. We get to choose every generation what kind of society we want to live in. And because we are a democracy, we do have that honor. So I, I believe that there's a battle going on. I think we're seeing remarkable hope all over our society. We're also seeing remarkable darkness. It's a really scary time. You're seeing concentration everywhere. You're seeing China. All of this stuff is really scary. The stakes are, are incredibly high. Uh, but I wrote the book Goliath because I wanted people to know that we have a history here, that if you feel frustrated, if you feel alienated, if if somehow your, your commercial self doesn't match up to your political self, it's there's a good reason for it. Um, and, and if you're upset, you are part of the American tradition of sus- being suspicious of concentrations of power, governing power, uh, political power, commercial power. That is a fundamental part of America. So Matt, uh, part of the answer is simple. I mean, you're, you're laying it out in fairly stark political terms. Uh, fair to assume Warren or Sanders would be going towards breaking up monopoly power. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has talked a lot about that in her campaign. Biden and Buttigieg and other establishment Democrats certainly would not go in that direction. So that's a very clear choice that Americans have to make right now, especially within the Democratic Party. But what else can people do to make this choice and, and to bring back Sanity. Well, I think that that you see, you know, fifty state attorney generals are investigating Google right now, led by a conservative Republican in 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 Texas, Ken Paxton. You see the House Antitrust Subcommittee with a bipartisan investigation. Uh, New York Democratic Attorney General Tish James is investigating Facebook. I think what you can you can see at every level of our society there are uh, there are debates um, about what to do, and you see action happening. I think the most important thing that people can do is educate themselves, right? I'm an activist, you've known me for 15 years, but I wrote a history, right? I wrote a history because it's the, I was I was a policymaker during the financial crisis and I was completely unequipped to see power. I just didn't know that it was a, it was not a technical crisis in the banking committee, it was in the banking system, it was a political crisis. We have to understand that as a people, again, we have to understand our history because we've been taught a fake history. So I, what, what, I, what I try to do in this book is explain the battles that, we, that our, our ancestors had that allowed us to live in a relatively free society, the battles that we don't know about. And if we learn about them, we can once again, they gain the confidence to govern ourselves. So I think the most important thing people can do is educate themselves on their history, on our history. All right, Matt Stoll, the book is Goliath, the 100 year war between monopoly power and democracy. Thanks for joining us, Matt, appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me.
Of course. All right, uh, guys, when we come back, Anna's got a great guest for you. And then Anna and I will do the post game as always, tyt.com slash join to become a member to get the post game and to get a special extra Thanksgiving show on Thursday just for the members. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the conversation. Joining us now is freelance journalist and investigative reporter Amy Littlefield, uh, who covers and focuses on the intersection of religion and healthcare. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you wrote a lengthy piece, and it's a devastating piece, but such an important story to report on about the legality of abortion in some areas of Mexico and how difficult it is for women to obtain abortions, even when it's legalized in the area that they live in. So can you just give us a quick summary of what you found in your reporting on this story? Yeah, so this story is first and foremost about a remarkable young woman who we call Patricia. She was 16 years old when she was raped by a taxi driver in her neighborhood on the outskirts of Guadalajara, Mexico's second largest city, which is located in Mexico's conservative heartland. And abortion is criminalized through most of Mexico, including in Jalisco state. But when Patricia found out that she was pregnant as a result of this rape, She told her mother Alma, and Alma knew that it was her daughter's legal right to access an abortion in Jalisco State under a rape exception that had been on the books in Jalisco since 1933. What Alma and Patricia didn't know when they set out to access this legal abortion in Jalisco State is that Throughout the state's entire recorded history until that year, 2016, no one had actually obtained an abortion under the rape exception, even though it was a legal right. So it ended up being a 22 day long harrowing journey for Alma and Patricia to secure this legal right to an abortion um, from the day that they reported the rape to prosecutors until the day when Patricia finally had her abortion in a public hospital. It was 22 days during which they encountered the legal director at the public health department who handed them a foil packet of misoprostol, an abortion inducing medication, and told them not to tell anybody about it. Mm-hmm. The dosing instructions that he gave them for this medication were incorrect. When Patricia took pills in that packet and they didn't work, they ended up in the hospital where a doctor gave them an unmarked bottle of medication and told them that um, they shouldn't get caught with it or they could end up getting arrested. And again, this was a legal abortion that they were accessing in a public hospital. Um, That was just the beginning of this harrowing 22 day long ordeal before Patricia finally was able to get an abortion that was her right under the law. You know, the the part of your piece that really, I can't forget about it, it really bothered me. I mean, this whole story bothered me obviously, but the way that she was treated by the nurses in that hospital, you know, this is, we're talking about a 16 year old who was raped. She has the legal ability to get an abortion. And can you just talk a little bit about how the nurses treated her? Yes, I'm so glad you brought that up. So when Patricia is finally admitted to the hospital after being treated like what she's doing is a crime, even though it's fully legal in the state, first the doctor tells her that 
they're going to have to basically induce labor in order for her to pass this pregnancy because, in his words, they don't have baby grinders, which is how he describes the medication or the um, equipment that's needed to perform a surgical abortion. Then for 12 hours, basically, Patricia is having painful contractions, passing her pregnancy. At one point, a doctor comes by and withholds pain medication. She believes punitively. A nurse came by and told her that the rape wasn't the baby's fault. Um, at one point, 15 medical students came and clustered around her bed, treating her like she was an experiment. She had well over a dozen vaginal exams, many of them painful. She was in the maternity ward surrounded by people who were in labor and she could hear them and they would not let her mother in the room with her. Oh my God. Um, so it was this really traumatizing ordeal, which Patricia and Alma really concluded was intended to punish her for trying to seek an abortion that, again, was her legal right and had been since 1933 in that state. So what I thought was fascinating is how she was the first to obtain an abortion um, since that law had passed uh, because of the protections for uh, you know rape victims. And you know, it's not really that shocking when you think about what you would have to do in order to obtain the abortion under those circumstances, right? You would have to come forward and somehow prove to prosecutors that you became pregnant as the result of a rape. And so that is not an easy thing to do. There are so many rape victims in this country, both men and women, who don't feel comfortable talking about their experience at all. They haven't even talked to a family member or someone close to them about it because there is unfortunately shame associated with that. And so then that made me think about the United States, right? And and some of the parallels that we see here in the US. Now, as we know, Roe v. Wade provides protections for women seeking abortions. But slowly but surely, we have the religious right wing in this country trying to do away with those protections. And so, you know, you do such great reporting about the intersection of religion and healthcare. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how our rights are being encroached upon here in the US in a very similar way? I'm so glad you brought that up because I think there are some really chilling parallels where Patricia's story can become a cautionary tale for those of us who are watching the historic erosion of abortion rights in the United States. You know, it's remarkable. My colleague Laura Gottesdiener and I were reporting this story in Mexico in September of 2018. So in the mornings, we were watching the Kavanaugh hearings in our hotel. We were watching this looming threat to abortion access in the United States. And then in the afternoons, we were going out and interviewing these abortion activists in Mexico, abortion rights activists in Mexico, who are dealing this, with this reality where abortion is largely criminalized. But we have to remember that here in the United States, We've seen women go to jail for miscarriage and other pregnancy outcomes. Yep. We've seen lawmakers introduce legislation in Texas recently to implement the death penalty for women who have abortions. We've seen, we have a president who's called for people who have abortions to be punished. So um, we can't think that we're all that different. And mm-hmm. what I really hope people take away from Patricia's story is the extent to which within a landscape where abortion is heavily restricted or criminalized, the rape exception is really a false promise. Mm -hmm. Because what you're doing, as you pointed out, is you're forcing the most vulnerable people, you know, traumatized survivors of sexual violence, to go through a system that is hostile, that is unwilling and unequipped to deal with their medical and emotional needs. 
Um, and I think in the United States, the, the rape exception has long been a fixture of anti-choice legislation because it's a way for everyone from Trump to the state lawmakers who are implementing this legislation at the state level to say, you know, hey, it's not that extreme. We've got this exception in there for rape and incest victims. When Alabama failed to have a rape and incest exception in their recent abortion ban that they passed in May, there was a national outcry over it. And yet I think it can be this false security blanket because if you are in a context where abortion is otherwise heavily restricted as we see in Mexico, um, that right doesn't actually meaningfully exist mm-hmm. um, except you know on paper. Exactly. And you know, what I always find so ironic about these violations of, of women's rights and, and the right to choose is what's proposed actually puts a lot of lives at risk, right? I mean, in the case of Patricia, the medication she was given in order to abort the fetus, you're right. I mean, they they gave her the wrong instructions on how to take it, and she was instructed to insert, you know, the pills vaginally, and that led to her getting very sick, and she was hospitalized as a result. She could have lost her life, and so does that ever come up in any of your reporting? Like, do do any of the religious individuals who are pushing for these restrictions? realize that they're being hypocritical and they're actually putting more people in danger by by passing this type of uh, or or pushing for these types of restrictions? You know, that's such an important point. And, you know, a a real underlying thread in Patricia's story is that time after time she was encountering medical providers who were imposing their religious beliefs on her, you know, Mm -hmm. their own moral beliefs about abortion. And they were um, using that to, you know, threaten and withhold medical care from her. Well, in the United States, nearly every state in this country has a law on the books that protects not patients like Patricia, but protects medical providers and institutions that want to deny abortion and other reproductive health care on religious grounds. And under the Trump administration, this has just accelerated. We've seen vast new powers for not just um, religiously um, inclined medical providers and individuals, but the institutions, um, religious institutions to deny care on religious grounds. You know, I've reported for years on Catholic hospitals, which make up one in six acute care beds in this country. And I've talked to women who have almost died in these institutions because even when they are miscarrying and inevitably losing a pregnancy, the hospital under its religious rules often won't perform an abortion to end the pregnancy that is inevitably being lost because of these religious rules that are written by bishops that these hospitals follow. So, you know, no, I mean, I think in terms of whether there's an understanding of hypocrisy there, I think these institutions actually believe that they are implementing religious rules that they are supposed to follow and quote unquote moral, you know, beliefs. Um, but we have seen time after time in this country that lives have been placed at risk in the name of religion. And under the Trump administration, these institutions and providers are getting more power than ever before to deny a broad range of care on religious grounds. Yeah, I mean, elections matter. Uh, who we elect, 
who they choose as Supreme Court justices, that has a lasting impact on our lives. It's so incredibly important, as is your reporting here. Amy Littlefield, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. And everyone, please check out her piece. It's titled, When Abortion After Rape is Legal But Nearly Impossible to Obtain. Again, Amy, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. All right, have a good one. And thank you for watching the conversation. We are about to do our post game and we'll see you in just a few minutes.